Oh, hello. There we go. Oh, that's a little bit loud for me. We're good? Hi. Thanks, Jaden, for the wave. Good morning, everybody. For those of you who do not know me, I think everyone here knows me. My name is Josiah Hodge. I am the lead servant and lead pastor who's currently having a little bit OCD right now. There we go. this morning. We just have a couple of announcements to make as we wind down. And then tonight, y'all are getting a round of applause as they come up and share some things with you guys.
it to lay hold of as to make one's own, to obtain, attain, to make one's own, to take into oneself. Now, what does it mean to comprehend this great love? And I, I believe it means this, to live as if his love for you is true and real. To comprehend, to katalabano, to make it yours. Now the love of God is not something far off, but now I know it's true. I live as if it's real. I have comprehended through revelation that it is mine. The love of God is not something I strive for or have to earn. He pours it out freely, and it is already true, and it is already real for me. And then I live in that love. Cantalabano, comprehend, bring it in to make it yourself. Now the love of God is not something outside of you. The love of God is something that now resides inside of you because now it's yours. You've become one with the love of God. But how do we get there? We have to be rooted and grounded in love to begin our life. So it's to comprehend. And I think it's beautiful because this revelation is for all the saints. He says, all the saints. What does that mean? This is not for some special special Christians. This is not for some highly anointed Christians. This is for all Christians who believe in Jesus Christ that this love that surpasses understanding would now be one with you. It's not through how much you know. It's not through how, how scholarly you are or how much you can read the Bible and interpret it. It's now through comprehending through the spirit that now this love that was poured out on the earth is for me and with me. And now when I abide in, I actually live as if I'm loved. My, can I tell you, when you see a person that actually believes they're loved, you are like, listen, every time. Joshua Jones is one of these people. When you meet him, you'll be like, there's something so different about Joshua Jones. It'll, you're just like, what the heck? And it's because he truly believes God loves him. I'm serious. When you believe God loves you, your life reflects it, and you look different. People are like, it's the Holy Spirit inside of you. Yes, it is, but when you live as if you're loved, it changes everything. You can have the Holy Spirit inside of you and not believe you're loved and live like crap. You will live in fear. You will live enslaved. You will live in bondage if you don't know you're loved because it's the love of Christ that breaks the chains. And a person who lives as if they are loved I'm saying really loved, knowing that God's love is unconditional. We had small group last Sunday and asked the question, is it hard for you to believe God's love is unconditional? And everyone said yes. And we live like it sometimes, man. We act as if every mistake we make, God rescinds his love, and now I got to work my way back to get back into his love. That is not how this works. You are so entrenched and enveloped in his love, there's nothing you could ever do to get out of it. Romans 8, 31 through 39 says twice, what can separate you from the love of Christ? And he names about 20 different things. And he says, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Yet we live as if our own decisions, somehow God is petty and fickle, and every little mistake you make makes him run from you. That has never been the case. Once again, I'll say it and say it again. God sits on a throne, not a swivel chair. A swivel chair, you can turn your back on someone, but his throne is always set in place to face you, that his face shines upon you. His love is always for you. You don't lose it. You don't get away from it. There's nothing you can do. And when someone has a revelation of that type of love, my gosh, it changes your life forever. Paul goes into a, a fourth dimensional view of the love of God. Paul is getting into stuff that scientists are interested in. That's the fourth dimension. And really, what is the fourth dimension? It's something that transcends our own dimension in reality. 
Now, there are multiple ways of viewing this passage, but when I was studying, Holy Spirit kind of grabbed me on that. God's love is not three-dimensional. It does not only exist in this plane. It's not something that can be changed by the world around it, but God's love is four-dimensional. It's transcendent beyond this, this realm, this reality, this realm of change, because everything that only exists in this realm changes. I'm going to say it again. Anything that only exists in the three-dimensional realm changes. Over time, it will not be the same. These chairs will not exist as chairs forever. 1.500 years down the road, they'll be all jank up and mangled somewhere. We will not be alive in 500 years. We'll be in the grave somewhere, dead. Praise God, our souls will be with Jesus, okay? But the fact of the matter is everything in this realm changes. But last time I checked, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He never changes. There's no shadow of change on his face. He remains the same forever because he is not stuck in a three-dimensional reality as we are. There is no change in him. He transcends our reality. It's a fourth-dimensional love because you cannot comprehend it through the mere intellect of a human being in a three-dimensional world. So Paul is saying, wrestle with this love that transcends your own mere human thinking. Because God never wanted you to understand his love. He wanted you to know his love. I understand a lot of things. I understand a lot of you and what you've been through. But I know my wife. There is something radically different about my relationship with you than with my wife. I understand things you've been through. I understand your story because I can conceptually hear what you're saying and retain information. But I know my wife. Christ never meant for you to know his love, sorry, to understand his love that he died for you. He wanted you to know his love. There's a major difference here. And so this love is four-dimensional. It transcends human understanding, human thinking. And it was never meant to be understood with the brain, but known with the soul, with the spirit. So what is Paul trying to describe? He's trying to describe something that is so vast, something that is all-inclusive, something that transcends our reality. And Paul invites us to look at the universe to the limitless sky above, to the limitless horizons on every side, to the depth of the earth and of the seas beneath us, and says the love of Christ is far more vast than even this. I don't know, I don't know how many of you have had the honor to travel the world. I have, and I've seen some of the most beautiful sights in the world that blew my mind thinking how massive. I should have put up a picture. One of my favorite pictures is when I spent four months in Ireland, and I'm standing on a cliff, and at the edge it's just ocean. looks like it goes on forever. And in that moment, I believe, was my first true revelation of the love of Christ, just looking at how big and how vast and how amazing what he made for mere humans to live on. Just through his creation, we see him, and we can know him. But his love is more vast than even that. It's bigger. It's far more transcendent than all these things. Now, by vast, what do I mean? I mean how, ins- how inescapable his love is. How it stretches throughout all of the world and over all of the peoples of the world to every nation, all tribes, peoples, and languages. That is a really big love. More vast than we can understand because on every place on earth there are people who live and exist there in the coldest places and the hottest places. And his love stretches even beyond that. That's what I mean by vast. It's more vast than the earth, more vast than the peoples. It stretches to all. By all inclusive, I mean it is for all people, anyone who would receive it. Even those the church may deem not worthy to receive, his love has been poured out. It's far more inclusive than you think it is. It's not about rules and rights, but it's about loving Jesus. It's not about skin tone or language you speak or your education. It's not about any of those things, your denomination, none of it. 
By transcendence, I mean it cannot be contained by space nor time. It is not constrained nor contained by time. That the sacrifice of Jesus was for all people for all time. If that's not transcendent, I don't know what is. That one selfless act of love by our Savior has now stretched throughout all time and all space, transcending what our mere minds can understand. That now all people have been touched by the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is a beautiful symbol of his love. The upper arm of the cross points to the heavens. The lower arm points to the depths of the earth. And the crossing arms point out to the widest horizons. And I love how William Barclay says this. In the width of its sweep, the love of Christ includes every person of every kind in every age in every world. In the length to which it would go, the love of Christ accepted even the cross. In its depths, it transcended to ex- it descended to experience even death. In its height, he still loves us in heaven where he ever lives to make intercession for us. No man is outside the love of Christ. No place is outside its reach. So what is Paul trying to say by this fourth dimensional love? Look how vast it is. Look how all-inclusive it is. Look how transcendent the love of God is beyond all things. And it's in this God and his mighty love that we rest. His love is so big it can cover the entire earth. Imagine what it can do for you. If his love is all-inclusive, imagine even in my dirt and my filth how his love covers me. Yes. Imagine even before I was born 2,023 years ago when Christ died, he was thinking even of me and that transcendent act of love now covers me even now. So what is Paul trying to say? Verse 19, he continues, to comprehend and know the fourth dimensional love and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. How can we know such a love that surpasses human knowledge? Yes, revelation. It's revelation. You probably get tired of hearing me say that. But the Holy Spirit teaches us things that, that can never be comprehended by human intellect. There are things that the Spirit reveals to us, no matter how great the intellect, that it is for those who know Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 13 says it this way. For to us, God has revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. That vastness. For who among men knows the thought of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. I, I am obsessed with that verse. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in the words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that only through the Spirit can we have revelation of the love of God that he so freely pours out into our lives, onto the world. How do we know what is unknowable? Through the very Spirit of God who searches the deep things of God. We can say it this way, who searches the vast things of God. He reveals 
this to us. To know, to have revelation of, is not merely to, to grasp an intellectual concept, but to live in the truth that has now been revealed. In Bible college, I learned a lot of spiritual truth. I learned them. I could have retained them, but it did not change my life. I'm just going to be honest with you. I was doing the same stuff I was doing before I got in ministry school when I got into ministry school. Because simply understanding something intellectually means nothing for your soul. This is what Paul is saying. This love that God has poured out on the earth is not for you to intellectually grasp. And so some of you are probably thinking, well, Pastor Si, I'm just not that scholarly. Guess what? They did not have a Bible for the first 400 years of the early church, and only 1% of people could actually read anyways. So you know what? It doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit is not only for the intellectual and the learned, but for all people who are willing and hungry for him. That's the beauty of this Christian life. We've made it so intellectual, so rule-based that you have to be the highest of the high educationally to have a church. But the fact of the matter is that is only in our current time. But the love of Christ transcends all that. So the fact of the matter is it doesn't matter how intellectual you are or how scholarly you are. This revelation, as Paul said, is for all the saints. It's for all the people. It's not just for Pastor Rick's eye. I'm not something special. I love Jesus and so do you. This revelation is for you. It's to live in that truth that has now been revealed. And I like to say it this way. Revelation revolutionizes your life. This is why I say it that way. Because I'm not just here for you to learn intellectually these verses, what they mean in, in the context of scripture. But I want you to leave revolutionized from these things. The second part of that verse says that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. Now I love looking at the Greek and this word filled is pleo. To make full, to fill up, to cause to abound, to furnish or supply liberally, to fill to the top so that nothing shall be wanting before me, to make complete in every particular, to win the privilege. What does it mean to be filled? To fill fully. There's, there's no other space. You've already been filled up with everything. And that word fullness is pleroma, and it literally just means that which is full. So let's read that verse again. That you may be filled to all the fullness of God, that you may be filled up to the one who is full. And I, I want to look at it this way. Having a revelation of the love of Jesus empties you of the things that are contrary to himself, to the Father, and to your own personal pride. Let me say it again. This life will fill you with a lot of things that you do not need and necessarily don't even want sometimes. So experiences that happen to you, not because you try to take part, because those things happen to you. And you're filled up with shame and guilt and insecurities and hardships and hatred and anger. And all these things fill you up because life is hard. Who can attest that life is hard? And a lot of times it don't make any freaking sense. I'm going to say freaking again. It don't make any freaking sense. And then we enter life and we're confused and we're hurting and we feel, we're filled with things we never wanted to be filled with. But when we have a revelation of the love of Christ, his love, which is the refiner's fire, comes through and cleanses us, empties us, casts it out of us so that we can now be filled with what he is. And that's what it means to be filled with the fullness of God, that what he is comes in and it cleanses you of everything. This is why I'm telling you, I don't need to preach sin and behavior change. Jesus is the one who transforms us. It's not my work, it's his. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I don't convict the word of unrighteousness. I just talk about Jesus. Jesus comes in and he empties us. He cleanses us of the things that once filled us that we didn't even want to fill us. 
I remember when I first started really in college following Jesus, I wanted to follow Jesus. I was filled with so many nasty things that I hated. I hated I was filled with lust. I hated that I was filled with anger, but I could do nothing to get it out of myself. It was not until I was 23 years old and I had a true revelation of the love of Jesus that those things were emptied out of me so I could be filled with everything that he is. Listen, this is what this verse is saying. Not only does he empty you, but the one who is fullness, the one who is complete, the one who is whole, now fills you with everything that he is. You become filled with the things of God, which does not look like separation, holiness. It looks like you walking amongst broken, hurting people as Jesus walked. Jesus was the holiest of the holy humans who ever walked this earth, but he never separated from sinners. He walked with sinners. I want to say it like this. The love of Jesus cast out the darkness so that you are now an empty vessel ready to be filled with I say it like this. His love empties us of confidence. I say it like this again. His love empties us of confidence. There are many things in this world that look like that. There are many things in this world that in the moment they feel like that. But I'm telling you, if it's not Jesus, it's empty. But when you have a revelation of Jesus, he reveals the counterfeits to what you really are. And he shows you what you thought was security, what you thought was love, it wasn't love. And I start to remove that. Your thinking starts to change. Okay, repentance, you, you saw it the wrong way, now you change your thinking, and now you start to see it right. And then Jesus starts to, to cleanse us of those things. Now I'm going to tell you, it's not a momentary done. For some people it is, and glory be to God that they, mine was a gradual transformation over time that now I find myself filled with. We are filled by the one who is fullness, who is perfect, who is complete. And you are filled with his essence. I'm going to say it like this. You're filled with his essence. Light which vanquishes darkness. Life which consumes death. And love which always triumphs. These are the things of God that we are now filled with. And they do look like power a lot of the times because light vanquishes darkness. Life consumes death. Light always, life, light, and love always conquer all things. So oftentimes, it does look like power because we're vanquishing things. But it's actually not power just reign. Listen, because when you talk about power, you have to talk about power structures and power systems. Every, every industry has different power levels. Every family has different power dynamics. Once we get into that, we never know what power actually means because a lot of you think power is abuse. A lot of you think power is forcing yourself on someone and conquering them. That's not power. That's abuse. There's a difference. God does not conquer people by forcing himself on them. God conquers people by revealing his heart to them. Let's go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 20. We're close enough. Matthew chapter 20. Verses 1 through 16. We're just going to read it through, and we're just going to talk about it a little bit. I'm going to talk through it as I read it. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. We'll go ahead and start reading. For the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. All right, the landowner is God. The vineyard is the earth. Let's go ahead and put out, put out this parable, what he's saying. The laborers are human beings. The Father looked down on humanity, on his earth. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them out into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And, those, and to those he said, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. 
Again, he went out about, wait, first, I got to pause. He said, whatever is right, I will give you. Pause. He determines what's right to be given. So I'm going to pause right there. He determines what is given. I'm just going to pause that. Again, he went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. So what is he doing? Ready in this parable? God is walking what? Throughout time. Different periods of time, God goes out into the earth, into the vineyard. Humans, humans, humans. All different times speaking to the different ones. Ready? When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, foreman is Jesus, ready? Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. The last group. So the first guy be last, the last guy be first. When those hired, listen, we say that, but not many of us like that. A lot of you have worked hard and you want to be number one. It's the power structures of the world. The world tells you to be number one. Jesus tells you to be last. So no, we say amen, first shall be last, but you don't want to be last. No one instinctively wants to be last. That, that's not how we're raised in America. In America, you're number one. Be the best. Be number one. When those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. Wait, a denarius is what he told the first group. They were going to go, whoa, whoa, what's happening here? When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. Hold up now. Jesus, something ain't right here. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner. Hmm, how many of us have grumbled at God for not being first? Saying, these last men have worked only one hour. You have made them equal to us who borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. That sounds a lot like striving to me. But he answered and said to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what is yours and go, for I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. It is not lawful for me to do what I wish with what I own, or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. What is happening in this parable? God gives to everyone equally, and you don't determine who gets what. We as the church have stood in a place of judgment like we got to control the love of God who receives it and who does not based upon the rules we put in place. But the fact of the matter is God looks upon humanity and he says, I'm the one who gives and I give equally to all men. There's no partiality in God. What is Jesus telling them in this parable? It's not for one ethnic group. It's not just for the Jews. It's not just for those you think are deserving of it. But the Father looks on humanity throughout all time and sends Jesus to give everyone the equal rights to the kingdom. That in Jesus, all people are touched by the cross. That it's not up to us who determines who deserves it or who, or who is worthy of it. But it's the one who owns it who determines these things. In this parable, we're put in a place of realizing his love really is that vast. His love really is all that inclusive and transcendent. One more passage. Let's go to Romans 8, 31 through 39. We're just going to read it through. Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who always intercedes for us. Pause and let's think about that. 
He says, who can be against us? Well, why? Because God and Jesus are the only ones who actually have power. I'm going to say this again. We give the devil so much credit for things he doesn't even do. Listen, 1 John tells us that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. The devil no longer has any power. The only power the devil has is what we allow him to have through wrong understanding and thinking. So the fact of the matter is the only people who actually have power are the ones who love you dearly. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is going to bring a charge against you? No one. He's the judge and he's already said you are freed, forgiven, and loved. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. He is not condemning you. He is literally by the Father talking about you right now. In the midst of your trash and your garbage that we all do and all walk through, Jesus is literally speaking good things about you to the Father. So if the one who can judge you and the one who can condemn you are both for you, who can be against you? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril? Pause once again. It doesn't say who will separate you from the power of Jesus. It doesn't say who will separate you from the might of Jesus. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? You ready? Because this part is important. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. What is he saying? We are literally dying. Christians, listen, at this point, the Roman emperors were literally killing Christians. We got to understand this. He's literally saying we are being put to death, but nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. Things in this world might destroy your family, destroy your life, even take your life, but nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus. Even if you are persecuted and tortured, he's saying nothing, but in all these things, We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. How do you overwhelmingly conquer something that takes your life? Because it is through death that we conquer. This is why you cannot take the hope of a Christian. Because whether in life or in death, nothing can take us from his love. And it is actually through death that Christ conquered the world. Now it is through death that we conquer the world. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? No one. His love is so vast, so all-inclusive, so transcendent that to try and grasp it with mere human intellect will always fall short. But when we have a revelation of the love by his Spirit, Our lives are transformed, and alongside our lives, the world around us, his love is so much more than we know. Will you please stand with me? Do you want to know how the early church could face persecution and not not falter? Because they knew they were loved. They didn't give up. 
They didn't pull back because of the fact they knew that even in those things, God loves them. So let me, let me reassure you, in the midst of cancer, he loves you. In the midst of divorce, he loves you. In the midst of your children going bonkers and having a horrible relationship, he loves you. And this is how the early church continued in the words of Jesus, because they knew that nothing they faced changed the way Jesus saw them. Nor was their hardship a reflection of him taking his love from them. They knew that even in the hardest of times, while they were being tortured and destroyed, that Jesus loved them. This is why Paul says, I'm convinced, in the Greek it literally means, he is so resolute, nothing will ever change his mind. He's convinced that neither death nor life, nor anything created or uncreated, can take you from the love of Jesus. Now listen, this is Paul, who was stoned and beaten multiple times. By multiple, I mean a lot, a lot of times. It's also the same man that was killed for the faith. And he said in his older days, the Romans, that he was convinced that nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Because the love of Christ is more vast, more all-inclusive, and more transcendent than anything we could ever merely comprehend. Scripture also tells us that there are, are unsearchable riches in Jesus. I don't know about you, but the word unsearchable really sparks my interest because it means you will never find the bottom of the barrel. That every day you could have revelation of Jesus and it could never, ever, ever, ever end. That's how big he is. How vast he is. If everything he is flows out of who he is, if everything he does flows out of who he is. And when we're calling for the power of God, man, we better have a revelation of his love. Or we can't even understand it when we experience it. Because his power oftentimes looks like you having peace that surpasses all understanding. His power often looks like you having comfort in the midst of the hardest seasons. You see, because Jesus conquered the world through sacrificial love, not through power and might. And the same way he came, the same way he will return. So I'm going to leave that nugget there with you, by the way. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He conquered the world through love, and that's what he'll continue to do. So Jesus, as we prepare to partake of Holy Communion, As we prepare our minds, I'm going to put it like this, not, not thinking through all the sin you committed this past week, but thinking about what he's freely given you through, through himself. So I'll put it this way. In this moment, let the Holy Spirit bring to the forefront of your mind everything the Father has freely given you. And then partake of communion, not out of fear of what's going to happen because of sin, but partake communion in knowing he's already conquered the world, and that through his body and his blood, he conquered the world. So today, I don't want us to take the Eucharist, Holy Communion, out of a place of remorse and grief, but out of a place of joy and victory. Because it was through his death that he conquered the world and he rose again for us. So I just want you to talk to the Holy Spirit for a minute. Let, let him bring those things that are freely given to you, the love, the joy, the peace, the comfort, the restoration, the reconciliation. Let him bring that to your mind so that when you partake of Holy Communion, you have a smile on your face. Because Jesus did it all for us. Because of his son and through his son. Let's take a moment. Go ahead and take a moment. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are so good. <laughs> you are so good to us, even when we don't deserve it. Because I've done a lot of things I did not deserve your love. I was being wild and crazy. But Jesus, thank you that you see me as the person you created, not what the world made me to be. 
that you see me the way you always intended for me to be. Jesus, I thank you for that, that you always see into who you made us to be and not just what the world's formed us into. Just thank you, Jesus. All right, section on my right, you may come and grab your communion elements.